This is Reza Shah Kazmi reading the section entitled The Speaking Quran from the book Imam Ali from Concise History to Timeless Mystery. I've been asked to read this section, which I'll sort of edit as I go through. It's not going to be a smooth professional reading at all. Um, this is something that Saqib Saftar has asked me to do for his Hikmah website, um, and I'm happy to do that. And I dedicate this reading to the memory of my beloved wife, Noreen, who passed away a few months ago. And also, I dedicate the reading to Joya Mantegatsa, who, more than anybody else, has helped me to come to terms with my loss. The Speaking Quran. <clears throat> the Quran consists of a book inscribed between two covers. It speaks not with the tongue. It cannot do without an interpreter. Tarjuman. That is a, a statement that I'm quoting from Imam Ali. Imam Ali was the interpreter of the Quran par excellence for his generation, following the death of the Prophet. He claimed that not one verse has been revealed of which I know not where it was revealed, what it concerns, and what is its subject matter. According to several narrations, he knew the circumstances of the revelation, asbab and nuzul, and the inner meaning of every verse. All abrogating and abrogated ones, those of definite or of polyvalent meaning, those of general or particular applicability. Following and reinforcing the Prophet's teachings, he taught that the Quran has a variety of aspects, each verse having seven or seventy levels of meaning. He claimed to be able to load seventy camels with the pages of a commentary he could give on the Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Quran, consisting of seven verses. This claim is not quite so fantastic as may appear at first sight, given the multiple levels of meaning in each verse of the Quran, and given the polysemic nature of the Arabic language, and thus the semantic fields of significance opened up by virtually every single word of the revealed speech. And in the light of the following hermeneutical principle of the Imam, which was to establish an entire genre of exegesis known as Tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an, the explanation or commentary of the Qur'an by the Qur'an. The Book of God, Imam Ali says, is that by means of which you see, speak and hear. Parts of it speak through other parts and some parts of it bear witness to other parts. If, therefore, we wish to explore any idea expressed in any verse of the Qur'an, we need to study many other verses which contain meanings and implications having a bearing on that idea. On the one hand, we need to have a comprehensive knowledge of the Qur'an, and on the other hand, we need to exercise our intuition in relation to the potentially unlimited allusions, hints and intimations isharat, that each verse and each word of the revealed discourse contains. These allusions fly like sparks from the words and verses in one part of the Qur'an 
casting light on nuances of meaning being expressed explicitly or implicitly in other parts of the Quran. We are thus plunged into an unfathomably profound and unimaginably intricate nexus of interwoven themes and reciprocally illuminating truths. We see how the Quran is indeed a clarification of quote, everything, 1689. How it contains the seeds of the solution to every conceivable question pertaining to metaphysics, cosmology, spirituality, psychology, ethics, law and society. How someone like Imam Ali could indeed write camel loads of pages of commentary on just seven verses of the text. All that exists in the cosmos and beyond it is either expressed or intimated within a matrix of discourse, a revealed tapestry woven out of principles, images, allusions, symbols, similitudes and parables intertwining in infinitely varied patterns. And indeed we have expounded in this Quran every kind of image, similitude, mathal, Every Kind of Similitude for Mankind, 1854. Imam Ali was, however, much more than just a commentator and interpreter of the Quran. He referred to himself as the Speaking Quran, Al-Qur'an Al-Natiq. He made this claim when his opponents at the Battle of Safin hoisted pages of the Quran on their spears, appealing to the Word of God for arbitration. Imam Ali was not merely engaging in battlefield rhetoric when he refers to himself as the speaking Quran. In another saying, he tells us everything in the Quran is in the Fatiha, everything in the Fatiha is in the Basmala, the formula of consecration, Bismillah rahman rahim Everything in the Basmala is in the Ba, the letter B, and everything in the Ba is in the dot beneath it. And I am that dot. We may be able to understand better what the Imam means by this extraordinary claim to be one with the quintessence of the entire Quran if we take into account his application of the concept of tajalli, self-disclosure, or theophany, the manifestation of God through phenomenal form and spiritual energy. This notion can be complementarily juxtaposed with tanzil or nuzul, which is the, quote, descent of the Quran. Literally, it means descent. The revelation itself, the bringing into the world of the divine discourse. To refer to the Quran as a tajalli means that it is not simply the revelation of the message of God. Rather, it means that the Quran is in and of itself a theophanic self-disclosure a manifestation of something of the very being of God, of the divine substance or energy mediated by melodic sound and meaningful speech. The Imam says, God has theophanized himself to them, his creature, in his book. Fatajalla lahum. There's a mistake there. It should be tajalla, not tajalla. He also describes God as one who has theophanized himself, as al-mutajalli, manifested himself to his creatures by means of his creatures, 
So he is al-mutajalli li-khalqihi bi-khalqihi. The whole cosmos, in other words, manifests the divine to the creatures in a way analogous to the manifestation of God to his creatures through the Quran. Both the cosmos and the Quran are modes of theophany. The Quran can thus concretely be perceived and not just abstractly conceived as a sonoral and textual recapitulation of the entire cosmos, while for its part the cosmos can be seen as the Quran writ large. Just as Imam Ali indicated the correspondence between the Quran and the whole of creation, so the Prophet alluded to an equally mysterious correspondence between the Quran and the quote, Imam. The Quran is incumbent upon you, the Prophet said, so take it as an Imam and a leader. This hadith can be read most profitably in the light of another, more famous one, in which the Prophet refers to his legacy as follows. Truly I am leaving behind amongst you the two weighty things, al-thaqalain, the Book of God and my family, my Ahl al-Bayt, my Ithrati. They will not be parted from each other until they return to me at the paradisal pool. Pool of Paradise, al hawd Similarly, we have this saying of the Prophet, Ali is with the Qur'an and the Qur'an is with Ali. They will not separate from each other until they return to me at the Pool of Paradise. The spiritual substance of Ali is at one with that of the Qur'an, such that he could, without exaggeration, call himself a speaking Qur'an. However, according to Imam Ali, each human being, each and every human being, we should say, can be regarded in one sense as a divinely revealed book. For the human being made in the image of God is, properly speaking, a theophany. As we've seen, God makes himself manifest as al-mutajalli to his creatures by means of his creatures. So each human being is a microcosm a small world by means of which God reveals himself. This idea is marvellously expressed in one of Imam Ali's most famous couplets. Although you see yourself as an insignificant speck, within you the entire universe is encapsulated. You are thus yourself the meaningful book whose letters make manifest that which is concealed. Diwan 72. Imam Ali gives us another clue to his own nature and to the transformative impact of the Quran, what one might call its realizational power, in the following saying. He describes the recitation of the Quran as a process of infusing the quality of prophethood into the soul. For one who recites the Quran, he says, it is as if prophethood is being woven into his very being. Except that he cannot be the recipient of the revelation, i.e. he cannot be regarded as a prophet in the strict sense. End of quote. The one who recites the Quran with his heart and not just with his tongue is thereby opening himself up to the theurgic power of the revealed speech fulgurating with the divine presence. 
It is as if he were being inwardly transformed into a prophetic being. But only one who receives the revelation directly and immediately from God is a prophet in the full sense. All of those who receive the revelation as mediated by the prophet cannot therefore be qualified as prophets themselves. Hence the phrase ka'annama, as if. This phrase comes again in a saying attributed to the prophet. For one who recites a third of the Quran, it is as if he were given a third of prophethood. He who recites two-thirds of the Quran, it is as if he were given two-thirds of prophethood. And he who recites the whole of the Quran, it is as if he were given the whole of prophethood. Recitation of the revealed discourse is akin to imbibing from the celestial fountain whence the revelation flows. And being inwardly transformed by this wine of divine speech into the wine itself. As the great German mystic Meister Eckhart died 1328, as Meister Eckhart says in a different religious context, but with a metaphysical logic that applies whatever be the religious context. The bodily food we take is changed into us, but the spiritual food we receive changes us into itself. Meister Eckhart, 1.50 This spiritual transformation is wonderfully expressed by Imam Ali in the following esoteric saying. Truly, God has a drink for his friends. When they drink it, they are intoxicated. And when they are intoxicated, they are enraptured. And when they are enraptured, they are blessed. And when they are blessed, they dissolve. And when they dissolve, they are free. And when they are free, they devote themselves purely. And when they devote themselves purely, they seek. One might say they seek truly. And when they seek, they find. Wajadu. And when they find, they arrive. Wasalu. And when they arrive, they are at one. Tasalu. There is no difference between them and their beloved. The mystical union being referred to here is the ultimate mystery, which is ineffable and inexpressible. As for union with the Qur'an, this relates to the process of becoming one with the tajalli. Actually, i just go back to that statement and explain it. The mystical union being referred to here is the ultimate mystery, which is ineffable and inexpressible. What I'm trying to get at there is that the experience itself is ineffable. So, existentially speaking, it's of an ineffable nature. And as regards the attempt to describe it, it's inexpressible. So it's existentially ineffable, or let's say ontologically ineffable, and rationally, logically, linguistically inexpressible.
As for union with the Quran, this relates to the process of becoming one with the tajalli, the theophanic self-manifestation, and not just self-disclosure of the divine reality. Rumi helps us to understand what this can mean. About the meaning of the Quran, from the Quran, oh sorry, ask about the meaning of the Quran from the Quran alone. And ask about the meaning of the Quran from that one who has set fire to his desires and has sacrificed himself to the Quran and is laid low so that the Qur'an has become the essence of his spirit. The oil that has sacrificed itself totally to the rose, smell either the oil or the rose as you please. Masnavi 5, 3127 to 3130. Here the distinction is drawn between the form of the human being, the oil, and the essence of the Quranic spirit, the rose. The person who has totally extinguished himself in the divine spirit of the Quran is described as one who has set fire to his desires, a vivid description of the state of fana, extinction of selfhood. The scent of the oil is one with the scent of the rose, two different forms, but united by the same essence the same fragrance, the same baraka, blessing. In one of the poems from his Diwan, Rumi pleads with us to enter into this state and become one with the Quran. You love me, I'll make you perplexed. Listen attentively. Build less as I ruin you. Listen attentively. If you build hundreds of cells like bees and ants, I'll make you deserted, homeless and alone. Listen attentively. You endeavour that people, both men and women, may become dazzled by you. I intend to dazzle and bewilder you. Listen attentively. Now diminish your recitations, stay silent and have patience so that I may read and make you identical with the Qur'an. Listen attentively. I should have said, read it like this. Now diminish your recitations, stay silent and have patience, so that I may read and make you identical with the Qur'an. Listen attentively. Kulliyat 556-57, number 2204. What then does it mean to become one with the Qur'an? Rumi gives this answer. When you have fled for refuge to the Qur'an of God, and remember the word Qur'an simply means recitation, so we could equally translate that. When you have fled for refuge to the recitation of God, you have mingled with the spirit of the prophets, Rabbani Anbiya. The Qur'an is the state's of the prophets, the states of consciousness. The Quran is the states of the prophets, Hal Haya Ambiya, the fishes of the holy sea of divine majesty. Masnavi 1, 1537 to 38. According to Rumi, becoming identical to the Quran means, among other things, becoming one with the spirit of 
all the prophets. And this implies assimilating all the states of consciousness of all of the prophets. It is, in other words, to become one with the Haqiqah Muhammadiyah, the spiritual reality of the Muhammadan substance to which the Prophet referred when he said that he was a prophet, when Adam was still being molded out of water and clay. This is the same metaphysical reality to which Jesus refers when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58. It is Jesus insofar as he is identified with the Logos, the Word, which was in the beginning and from which all things were made. Just as the Prophet is describing himself insofar as he is identified with that Haqiqah through which creation was manifested. As the Quran comprises the spiritual substance and the states of consciousness of all previous prophets, so too does the Muhammadan reality, the batin of Nubuwa, the inner dimension of prophethood. The walaya, the sanctity, the holiness, emanating from God as al-wali, the friend, and being manifested through all of God's friends, the prophets and the saints. Ibn Arabi affirms the same principle in a rather elliptical way by saying that the spirit of the Quran manifests itself in form not only as the book but also as the man, Muhammad. He who, among the members of his community who did not live during his epoch, he who wishes to see Muhammad, let him look at the Quran. There is no difference between looking at the Quran and looking at God's messenger. It is as though the Quran had clothed itself in a form of flesh named Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib. If we note that the Prophet referred to Ali as being like his very self, it becomes easier to see the way in which the two selves are as one in their common spiritual substance, the walaya, which flowing from God, is divine and thus unique in its essence, while assuming infinitely diverse modes and degrees in the forms through which it traverses. The Prophet said to Ali, You are from me and I am from you. Ali is quite evidently from the Prophet insofar as the immediate source of Ali's sanctity is the walaya coming from God through the Prophet. But the Prophet can also be seen as coming from Ali if we appreciate that the Prophet is speaking symbolically. This is only insofar as Ali symbolizes Walaya and he, the Prophet, symbolizes Nabuwa alone, without reference to the Walaya that Nabuwa comprises at its heart. We are reminded here of the Prophet's famous designation of Fatima, Umm Abiha, the mother of her father. For even if the Prophet is always superior to the saint in human terms, and the sanctity of the Prophet is always greater than the sanctity of the saint, nonetheless the principle of Walaya takes precedence over the principle of Nubuwa. The relationships in question are more clearly seen when we recall that Al-Wali is the name of God, or as An-Nabi is not. In his Fusus al-Hikam, Ibn Arabi makes this point and tells us that sainthood is the encompassing universal orbit 
and this is why it does not end. By contrast, law-giving prophethood and messengerhood, these do come to an end. Walaya pertains to ultimate reality, whereas Nubuwa, prophethood, is specific and time-bound. Determined by the specific needs and imperatives attendant upon a particular legislative function in respect of a given community. The knowledge which defines the prophet's message as prophet is determined by the needs of his community. However, when a prophet expresses realities that fall outside the domain of the specific revealed law, the sharia, with which he is sent, he does so in his capacity as, quote, a saint and a knower. So, according to Ibn Arabi, his station as being a knower is more complete and more perfect than his station as a law-giving prophet. Therefore, what is meant by the claim that the saint is superior to the prophet is that this is so within a single individual, according to Ibn Arabi. The prophet's consciousness as a saint is superior to his consciousness as a prophet. This teaching comes through with particular clarity in the story of Al-Khidr and Moses in the Surah Al-Kahf, the cave, Surah number 18, to which we will be turning shortly. In the light of these considerations, we may understand more deeply the meaning of the statement by Ibn Arabi cited above, that Ali is, quote, the Imam of the world and the secret of all the prophets. Imam al-Alam wa sir al-Anbiya. And we might better understand Rumi's reference to Imam Ali as, quote, the pride of every prophet and every saint. All of the prophets take pride in Ali because he outwardly manifests the station of sanctity, which at once transcends the station of their own prophethood and defines the quintessence of their own inward reality. Let's note in this context another allusion to the mystery of Imam Ali from a Persian commentary on one of the most important early manuals of Sufism, the Kitab al-Ta'arruf li-Madhab Ahla Tasawwuf by Abu Bakr al-Kalabadi. He writes about the five founding fathers of Sufism, Imam Ali, his two sons, Imams Hassan and Hussein, then Imam Ali ibn al-Hussein Zain al-Abidin, and Imam Muhammad al-Baqir. In his commentary, Abu Ibrahim Mustamli Bukhari says that Ali is, quote, the secret mystery of the Gnostics, Sarr-Arifan, and asserts that the whole Muslim community agree that he represents the breaths of inspiration of all the prophets. And cited by Lenny Lewison in his book on ethics in the mirror. I forget the exact title. I've just put ethics here, but it's something like Imam Ali in the mirror of Imam Ali and the Ethics of Sufism in the Mirror of Persian Literature, something like that. Page 113. Very, very important uh, article that. The following saying of the Prophet reveals, at least partially, the way in which Imam Ali can be seen as the pride of every Prophet and every Saint and the secret of all the Prophets. And I would add here again what uh, Abu 
Ibrahim Mustamli Bukhari says that he represents the breaths of inspiration of all the prophets and Farsa Peyghambaran. So this saying is the one that we will finish this reading with. He is a saying of the Prophet himself, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. He who wishes to see Adam as regards his knowledge, Noah as regards his obedience, Abraham as regards his friendship with God, Moses as regards his awe of God, and Jesus as regards his purity, let him look at Ali. Ibn Abi Talib.